Today's episode is the final episode in our first season. Thank you all for accompanying us on this journey as we've worked to build an undead foundation for future seasons. We'll be back with season two in March, and we plan to cover some banger cases like It, Psycho, and Cabin in the Woods. In the meantime, you can tell your friends about season one and check us out on Twitter at NamelessDeadPod and Instagram at NamelessDeadPodcast. You can also check out our website at NamelessDeadPodcast.com where you can find past episodes, fan club info, and a case suggestion form. And now, on with the show. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? What's he done to you, dearie? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms and he made me drink. My darling, I simply cannot express to you the simple joys I derive from these tea parties we occasionally have. It seems I am forever longing to be with you where we can talk freely and build our castles in the air. My dear Karina, it seems an age since we've seen one another. I, too, adore our long talks when we have the opportunity to meet, which is not to say I'm not eternally grateful for your sweet letters. Each ghostly tale spun to the real-life crime that inspired it simply has me on the edge of my seat. My dearest Emily, you do me such kindness, for we all know that my preoccupations are simply those of a madwoman. 
But since you've shown an interest, I was half finished with a letter to you just last evening. It concerns the murder of a maiden and a count from Transylvania. And of course, I do so want to tell you all. Would you mind in a brief interruption of our typical routine if I should tell you the story rather than write? Dearest Karina, there is nothing which interests you which shall not be dear to me. My dear Emily, I am not ungrateful in your goodness to me. This will be a grand experiment as it will enable you to share your thoughts with me immediately instead of waiting an eternity for a letter to arrive to hear your true thoughts. As I've written in the past, the myth of supernatural beings that consume the blood or flesh of the living have been found in nearly every culture around the world for many centuries. But they are far from the real-life vampiric cryptids that sometimes walk amongst us that should make us ladies quake in our beds. There exist many true crime cases in which clinical vampirism plays a role. Are you familiar, my dearest Emily? That is when a person has an ungodly obsession with drinking human blood. Let us discuss the case that started it all, the Count of Transylvania. This story begins with a mysterious and tragic ship's journey into Whitby Harbour in London. The Vesta was first spotted by onlookers tossed about the waves of a major storm, according to an 1897 edition of the Daily Mail. Whilst the schooner did make it to dock intact, investigators and onlookers were shocked to observe the ship's captain's corpse lashed to the helm of the ship with the ropes on his hand cutting flesh to bone. In the corpse's hand was a rosary, and in its pocket was an addendum to the ship's log. Upon further investigation, investigators discovered the ship's only passenger, a man by the name of R. M. Renfield, who had been driven quite mad by whatever had taken place on that ship. No crew members were found, dead or alive. Naturally, all modern men would hope that the answers to this mystery lay in the captain's log. The log entries itself are rather long and were initially written in Russian, so I've taken the liberty of writing out a summary. Lovely Emily, would you be so kind? Of course. 16th of July, Porovsky, crew member, disappears. Reportings of a strange man on the ship. Stowaway murderer, perhaps? 17th of July, captain conducts full search of the ship, finds nothing. 22nd of July, ship hits rough weather. 24th of July, another crew member disappears. 28th of July, quote, four days in hell, end quote. 29th of July, the second mate disappears. 30th of July, last day of the journey. Man of watch and steersman go missing, leaving only the captain, first mate, and two hands. 1st of August, ship hits fog. 2nd of August, captain and the first mate hear a cry, run on deck to find no one. One of the hands has disappeared. 3rd of August, the other hand disappears during watch. The first mate saw a tall, pale man tried to stab him, but the knife only hit air. The captain calls him mad, stark, raving mad. 
first mate throws himself into the sea. Captain believes he, the first mate, murdered the crew, then committed suicide. 4th of August. Captain hallucinates a tall man. Entry confirms that he tied himself to the wheel with the cross. My goodness, what on earth was on the addendum? The Daily Graph published the entry as a whole, with the addendum added in as the 4th of August entry. The captain hallucinated the tall man that the first mate mentioned and resolved to tie himself to the helm once his strength began to fail him. The captain, whose name has tragically been lost to history, was buried at shore on 10th of August in a beautiful ceremony. Numerous sea captains from harbors all over England came to Whitby and carried the coffin to the churchyard, whilst a cortege of boats sailed up and down the river. The ship's sole survivor, Renfield, was committed to Seward Sanatorium for observation. Oh, poor dear. What was he doing on the ship in the first place? And did he lose his memory along with his mind? Did he have anything to contribute to solving the mystery of the tragic ship? My sweet love, he was too traumatized to articulate much of anything. You're aware of the harmful biases against neurodivergent people back then. They probably would not have believed anything he said. He was traveling on the ship, caring for the ship's cargo, a number of wooden boxes which ended up filled with mold after the stormy seas. These boxes were consigned to a Whitby solicitor by the name of S.F. Billington. For some reason, he still wanted them and came on board and took them away. But, Karina, does that not seem terribly suspicious to you? Why, yes, Emily, I must say it does. I must wonder, however, if there was something either Mr. Billington or the general population at large missed. After all, who would want a bunch of moldy boxes? The night the Vesta crashed into Whitby Harbor, a night watchman was patrolling the streets in Westminster when he found a young lady fallen in the street. How typical for London in the 1800s. The night watchman quickly realized the young flower girl, whose name has been lost to history, was dead and cried for medical assistance. Further inspection of the girl found no signs of trauma or injury, except for a small bite, possibly from a rat, on the girl's neck. Unfortunately, as the poor dear was from a poorer class in London, the murder did not garner much attention. That same night, just blocks away, a Miss Lucy Westenraw attended a performance at St. James Hall with her best mate, and some would argue lover based on their letters to one another, Mina Seward, along with Mina's fiancé, Jonathan Harker, and Mina's father, Dr. John Seward, who owned the sanatorium where Renfield was residing. There, the party met Count Dracula of Transylvania, a recent transplant to London. The Count had leased Carfax Abbey, a decrepit abbey located next door to Dr. Seward's home and sanatorium. In short, the group had happened across their new neighbor. I simply must know more about Dr. Seward. The man was running a creepy sanatorium next to a creepy, decrepit abbey? Dearest Emily, I know but little about Victorian English real estate. But as the country is the approximate size of the state of Alabama, I must assume there simply isn't enough room. Lucy immediately took a shining to the handsome Count, and the two engaged in some light flirtation before Count Dracula departed to watch the performance. 
Naturally, that night before going to bed, Mina teased her best friend, who was staying at the sanatorium with her, about her fancy for the Count. The two giggling girls went to bed, believing all was right with the world. That night, Lucy Westenrog grew ill. Lucy, who was plagued with nightmares and had issues with sleepwalking, grew weak and her wounds stopped healing. How did anyone notice her wounds had stopped healing? Uh, Had she been injured prior to this? Naturally, it was Lucy's perceptive best friend, Mina, who noticed the symptom. When the ship's captain was buried at Whitby Harbor, Lucy and Mina watched the funeral from East Cliff nearby. Apparently, Lucy was so bothered by the captain and his tragic story that she sleepwalked to that very spot. Mina, who was constantly intercepting her sleepwalking, discovered her there in her nightdress. Since the night was cold and raining, Mina clipped a cloak over the sleeping girl's body and accidentally pricked Lucy's neck. This was the main injury Mina kept an eye on while reporting on her friend's health. When Lucy's symptoms progressed to trouble breathing, nightmares, and obvious anemia, Dr. Seward, who could find no obvious cause for her symptoms, decided to call in assistance. Was the Westenra family made aware of Miss Lucy's condition? Mrs. Westenra was made aware of her daughter's ailment, though at what point is unclear. A severe heart ailment that made it difficult for Miss Westenra to travel also provided an excuse for Dr. Seward to withhold information from her. For assistance, Dr. Seward wrote an old professor of his, philosopher and metaphysician Dr. Abraham von Helsing, who traveled to London to attend to young Lucy. Did Dr. Seward find all other doctors in London to be so lacking that he must call upon a doctor from... Uh, Where did von Helsing travel from? Professor von Helsing of Amsterdam. Dr. Seward seemed to trust him in the study of obscure disease. And he must have been quite unengaged to be able to travel on such short notice. My impression is that he was not invited to many dinner parties. The doctor claims to diagnose Lucy almost immediately, but refuses to disclose the cause of her illness. Curious. He prescribed blood transfusions to aid her anemia. Oh dear, 1800s blood transfusions. Quite. There were a few problems with this treatment plan. Blood types would not be discovered until the year 1901. The Victorian process for transfusing blood was much more traumatic for the body. The apparatus looked more like a caulking gun, and the silver pipe used as a needle was about the size of today's catheters. Though the syringe only held two ounces, Dr. Von Helsing took enough blood to leave each of the four blood donors weak for approximately one week's time. Receiving the incorrect blood type in a transfusion can lead to acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, which can result in shock, kidney failure, circulatory collapse, and death. On the 20th of September, Lucy Westenra dies. Her official cause of death was a nervous prostration following great loss or waste of blood. And von Helsing would never disclose his diagnosis. Seward never asked any other doctors? 
Dr. Seward did not ask any other doctors, but Dr. Van Helsing did reveal a diagnosis eventually. During Dr. Van Helsing's stay at the sanatorium, he developed an interest in Renfield. At this point in his stay, Renfield was creating entire predatory ecosystems in his room. He would leave sugar from his tea time on his windowsill to attract flies. He would feed these flies to spiders. Then he would feed the spiders to sparrows that he would again attract through his window. On occasion, Renfield would give up on this project and adjust whatever currently populated his ecosystem. After Lucy's death, Dr. Von Helsing took a blood sample from Renfield and declared him a vampire. <laughs> what on earth led him to that conclusion? I was under the impression that vampires don't have blood. This doctor seems wildly unhealthy for the good of this household. When inventing a fictional monster, one can make up any rules that he so pleases. This proclamation, of course, led everyone to believe that Renfield was the cause of Lucy's death. In all fairness, Seward's sanatorium was in such disarray that Renfield managed to frequently disappear for hours without any of the staff knowing his location. My dear Karina, could the sanatorium possibly have been eager to accept this explanation for Lucy's death simply to excuse their ineptitude? This is certainly possible, my perceptive friend. However, there is one flaw in this logic. You see, Renfield had an obsession with Miss Mina rather than Lucy. He threatened Mina, causing Dr. Seward to put him under supervision. Pray tell, Karina, was he not already under supervision? Not 24 hours supervision. Unfortunately, the sanatorium employees continuously neglected these duties, mostly by falling asleep whilst they were supposed to be watching Renfield. Oh, how distressing. When Mina falls ill, she turns to the household expert, Dr. Von Helsing, to diagnose her. Mina's symptoms included lethargy and exhaustion and nightmares. While these symptoms do mirror her friend Lucy's symptoms, I believe if I had just lost my best friend, a frequently escaping madman living in my house was making threats against my life, and everyone was talking about vampires, I might exhibit a few of these symptoms myself. Naturally, when Dr. Von Helsing examines Mina, his imagination kicks into high gear. He finds a mark on Mina's neck that he believes to be a vampire bite. Throughout this time, the sanatorium's new neighbor, Count Dracula, has been visiting on occasion. Such an occasion occurred during Mina's medical examination, which for some reason was taking place in the drawing room. Likely concerned about the ailing young woman, the Count asked if he could visit Mina later. In a perfectly normal behavior, whilst Count Dracula was conversing with Mina, Dr. Von Helsing and Jonathan took out a small box mirror to check the Count's reflection. What prompted such an action? Did Dr. Van Helsing suspect Count Dracula of murdering Lucy as well? Dr. Von Helsing claims the mirrored box was simply laying about in the parlor, and he happened to catch sight of the Count's lack of reflection. 
The more I read into this case, however, the more it reminded me of the Salem witch trials, with Dr. Von Helsing playing our very own Abigail Williams. Assuming Jonathan and the doctor were playing some sort of trick on him, Count Dracula threw the box on the ground, quickly apologized to Dr. Seward for his action, and left the sanatorium. Whether because of the Count's abrupt exit or because Dr. Van Helsing seemed to latch onto whatever new theory catches his eye, Count Dracula became the vampire du jour. Soon after Mina had supposedly gone to bed, her maid found the young woman passed out in the garden. It seems as though Mina had begun sleepwalking just as Lucy had. Mina's maid, another name lost to history, ran into the house to alert the men of Mina's condition, mistakenly announcing that Mina was dead. Did Miss Mina's nurse truly believe her to be dead, or did she experience a slip of the tongue? It is unknown, though the household was reeling from the trauma of Miss Lucy's having just passed away. Either is possible. The men, who up until this point had been conversing with the escaped Renfield, rushed out to the garden, leaving the maid alone with Renfield. Were the men having tea with Renfield? What terrible sanitarium managers. The men returned with the unconscious Mina to find her maid also unconscious in the parlor, presumably having been attacked by Renfield, who then fled the scene. As all of this is going on, the Westminster Gazette began reporting on the Kensington Horror, the Stabbing Woman, and the Woman in Black, who was abducting children playing in the heath overnight. The majority of these children were too young to get accurate testimonies, but some children had small neck wounds, as if from a rat or a small dog. How many days after the arrival of the mysterious ship did this take place? The first story was reported on the 25th of September, so approximately six weeks after the Vesta crash docked. The Westminster Gazette read, Further attacks on small children committed after dark by the mysterious woman in white took place last night. Narratives of two small girls. Each child describing a beautiful lady in white who promised her chocolates, enticed her to a secluded spot, and there bit her slightly in the throat. The local children referred to this figure as the Boofer Lady, and even began playing Boofer Lady, in which they would fake abductions of one another. With some leading from Dr. Van Helsing, Mina became convinced that this Boofer Lady was actually Lucy, come back from the grave to haunt the heath. Why would Dr. Van Helsing lead Mina to believe such a thing? I'm sorry, dear Emily, but the majority of Dr. Van Helsing's reasoning is lost on me. After this conversation, Mina, too, began to believe that she would die a horrible death, like Lucy, and that her soul would never rest. That will likely be her fate if she continues to allow Dr. Van Helsing in her company. Miss Mina ends her engagement to Jonathan. Some contemporary scholars believe that Mina may have been the victim of sexual assault, either in the garden or sometime around this time. Mina cited her reasoning for ending her engagement as this horror, and at one point, after kissing her fiancé, unclean, unclean, I must touch him or kiss him no more. 
In addition, much of her behavior can be explained by post-traumatic stress disorder. Has any light been shed on who may have perpetrated such an act? Was it Jonathan or Renfield or any of the other men living in the sanatorium? It truly could have been any of them, though Miss Mina makes a more substantial accusation a bit later. True to form of only prescribing the most damaging remedies, Dr. Von Helsing covers Mina's room in wolfsbane and insists that she wear a necklace of the flower to sleep to repel the vampire he believes must be attacking her. Wolfsbane is a poisonous flower found in the mountainous region of the Northern Hemisphere. The flower legendarily kills werewolves and keeps vampires away. In actuality, it kills people. While severe poisoning occurs from ingestion, paresthesia, and mild toxicities such as headache, nausea, and heart palpitations can occur from skin contact. In my research, I was unable to find symptoms of prolonged skin contact or what happens when an excessive amount of wolfsbane is inhaled for an extended period of time. I imagine this is because no one else has been dense enough to do this. Why would they not just use garlic? Would that I could tell you, dear Emily. The myth that garlic repels vampires was popular at the time. Perhaps Dr. Van Helsing was simply unaware of it. Or perhaps he believed wolfsbane to be more lethal to vampires. It certainly is more lethal to humans. The 1st of October held a number of heightened encounters in the Seward's parlor. Renfield, who had once again escaped from his room, overheard Dr. Von Helsing attempting to convince Dr. Seward and Jonathan that Count Dracula was a vampire. But why would Jonathan remain in the house when Mina had previously broken off her engagement to him? I believe Jonathan declined her breakup. Unbelievable. Seizing this opportunity, Renfield burst into Dr. Van Helsing's conversation and proclaimed that he granted Count Dracula access to the house. Renfield was quickly dragged away by sanatorium attendants, leaving the men of the household and countless historians to wonder if he was speaking truth. Count Dracula paid another visit to the sanatorium, immediately finding Dr. Von Helsing. The two men exchanged heated words. We only have Dr. Von Helsing's account of the exchange, but he wrote that Count Dracula claimed possession of Mina, and, in response, he told the Count to return to his home country. Dr. Van Helsing told the Count to go back where he came from? He did. How modern of him. Why was Count Dracula in England to begin with? I can only assume he was in search of a better, or perhaps simply a different, life. The Count was not the first person to attempt to separate Dr. Van Helsing from Mina during her illness. Jonathan had attempted to take Mina into the city just the day before. It seems evident that everyone knew that Dr. Van Helsing's treatment of Mina was doing far more harm than good. Thank heavens. 
Why did Jonathan attempt to bring Mina to London? Dr. Seward and Dr. Von Helsing prevented him. Both of them felt confident that Dr. Von Helsing was the best thing for Mina's health. Dr. Von Helsing, in response to Count Dracula's wish to take Mina away, threatened to destroy the Count in his new home of Carfax Abbey. According to Dr. Van Helsing, the Count then lunged at him and was able to ward him off with a crucifix. But that may have been an embellishment. Dr. Van Helsing does not seem to be a reliable narrator. Dr. Van Helsing seems to have been unreliable in a vast number of ways. That evening, Jonathan visited Mina and found her restored. She seemed to be in perfect health, though she had little recollection of her illness or things that took place during the time. Was this restoration due to Count Dracula leaving? Count Dracula remained at Carfax Abbey. In fact, the situation at the Seward Sanatorium had not changed. Mina began rebelling against the strict control that Dr. Von Helsing and her father were exerting over her, desiring to leave her room and be allowed outdoors on the balcony just outside of her room. When Dr. Von Helsing entered Mina's room with her father, the young woman burst into tears and stuttered at a confession involving some sort of assault by Count Dracula. Mina claimed that Count Dracula snuck into her room, opened up a vein, and forced her to drink his blood. Many contemporary scholars believe that some sort of sexual assault occurred, and Mina simply couched the assault in a metaphor that the men would be likely to act upon. Though I would be remiss to dismiss Mina's statements completely, as clinical vampirism does exist. Interesting. Would the men not have taken a sexual assault seriously? It may have had more to do with Miss Mina's honor than anything else. We should not forget what was considered valuable in a woman in this period of time. Dr. Von Helsing and Jonathan decided to break into Carfax Abbey. On the night of the 3rd of October, the two men began their expedition. As they were walking in the graveyard of the abbey, before they even reached the church itself, they spotted yet again escaped Renfield. The two decided to follow Renfield, who ran into the abbey. Through a peephole in the side of the church, they saw Renfield speaking to Count Dracula with a silent Mina in her nightgown between them. All three figures stood on a giant stairwell just inside the walls of the church. Renfield appeared to be begging the Count for forgiveness, possibly for playing into the accusation that the Count was a vampire. Jonathan called out to Mina, but she was unresponsive. Was Mina sitting on the stairs? Was was she collapsed? Miss Mina was standing as if she were sleepwalking, and perhaps she even was. Dr. Von Helsing and Jonathan resolved to enter the abbey, but as they were traveling around the side of the building to the door, Renfield fell down the abbey's stone stairs. The two men broke through the abbey door to find Renfield lifeless on the church floor and Count Dracula running with Mina in his arms into the depths of the abbey. The men purportedly heard Mina scream as they gave chase. A 
According to the two men, they then found the Count asleep in one of the boxes of dirt that had been on board the Vesta when it had hit harbor in July. Dearest Karina, are you proposing that Count Dracula fled from the two men and then promptly went to sleep? These men are perhaps not the most reliable narrators. Obviously, some unaccounted for time must have passed before the gentlemen managed to break into the abbey. Upon seeing the Count vulnerable and asleep, Dr. Von Helsing and Jonathan proceeded to stage a grisly murder. Dr. Von Helsing broke apart the lid of one of the boxes whilst Jonathan searched for a blunt trauma instrument to use on the sleeping man. Jonathan exited the room before the murder occurred, supposedly to continue to search for Mina, but possibly to avoid any culpability for the murder. Dr. Von Helsing proceeded to use the piece of iron that Jonathan had uncovered to hammer the piece of wood detached from the lid of the box through the Count's chest. Both Jonathan and Mina, in separate rooms, were able to hear the Count's screams as he died a painful death from the impalement. The doctor then decapitated Count Dracula's corpse and filled the body's mouth with garlic due to some Eastern European superstition. According to his writings, the doctor believed that the Count's body would turn to ash once he was dead, leaving no evidence of his crime. But we, of course, know that's not how human bodies work. Less is known about the repercussions faced by Dr. Von Helsing for this murder, assuming there were any at all. The doctor was not as meticulous a record keeper as either Mina Seward or her father. We do know that Mina and Jonathan eventually married and had a son. From a note written by Jonathan seven years after these events unfolded, it would seem as though no justice was ever served for Count Dracula. And this entire tale was comprised of personal accounts, family histories of a group of people being horrible, abusive, and even murderous toward one another. In all the mass of the material of which the record is composed, there is hardly one authentic document, nothing but a mass of typewriting, except the latter notebooks of Mina and Seward and myself, and von Helsing's memorandum. We could hardly ask anyone, even did we wish to, to accept these as proofs of so wild a story. Quite the wild tale. So Mina made a full recovery. Do we happen to know why? I found no records mentioning a reason for Mina's recovery. Naturally, many people attributed it to Count Dracula, the vampire's death. More realistically, she may have begun recovering from the death of her friend, as we all saw almost all of her symptoms replicate those of dear Lucy, up to and including piercing her neck to mimic the pinprints she gave Lucy on Eastcliff. Mourning seems to be the most obvious ailment. Could it have been Dr. Von Helsing's departure? Certainly. We assume Dr. Von Helsing returned to Amsterdam following the murder. Whatever happened to the Boofer Lady? The Boofer Lady is a tale all its own. Once Miss Mina was successfully brainwashed into believing this apparition was her deceased friend Lucy, 
Dr. Seward and Dr. Von Helsing went on a mission to mutilate Lucy's corpse, just as they would later do to Count Dracula's. The process involved much sneaking around at night, Dr. Von Helsing removing Lucy's corpse from its mausoleum and hiding it twice, multiple lost children that the men simply left in the countryside to be found by a patrolling officer, separating a mother from her child and locking her in Lucy's mausoleum, and, of course, decapitation and mutilation of the young woman's corpse. My goodness, these men were monsters! Why did nobody stop them? Under the hysterics of monsters, anything is permissible. As far as I can tell, the boofer lady was simply a flash in the pan. There were a few reports of her, and from there, rumors and fear did their work. In fact, the same statement can be applied to this entire tale. Following a few unfortunate incidents, rumors and fear protected these men and allowed them to behave in terrible ways up to and through the murder of their neighbor, Count Dracula. This episode was written and hosted by Karina McGeehan, with co-hosting by Emily Shirley. Script Punch-Up was done by Katie Jeffries. Our producer is Derek Adams, and editing, sound, and music design was done by Ian Ennis.